This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2013 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Now streaming only on Hulu. Hey, hey, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. And today on the show, we're talking about one of my favorite shows, The Gilded Age on Max. It's back with a second season, and I am so excited because this is my soap. These are my stories. And my guest today, author and culture critic Brandon Taylor, feels the same. I love the ridiculousness of the gowns, of the theater of it all. The minute they were like, season two, I was like, I will be seated. I will be ready. (laughs) (laughs) We follow the families of railroad barons, bankers, and the upper upper bourgeois and watch the battles between old money and new money unfold. It's really about rich people being mean to rich people at its heart, though I do think it thinks it has more on its mind than that. But one of the most interesting characters on the show, and perhaps my favorite character, is Peggy, an upper middle class black journalist, though she does lead me and Brandon to have some questions about how post-Civil War black life is portrayed on the show and questions about why shows like this seem to turn away from certain histories and characters. I called up Brandon to chat about The Gilded Age, why we watch period pieces, and why they might say more about our own time than our nation's past. Brandon Taylor, welcome back to It's Been a Minute. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to have you. We're here to talk about The Gilded Age which admittedly is one of my favorite shows to watch. I'm very excited it's back. And I do have critiques of it, though, which we'll get to. But what makes period pieces like The Gilded Age like so appealing to us? Like, What are, what are we looking for? The pleasures of period dramas is that they're mm. inherently a sentimental form. They're a nostalgic form. They present this aestheticized, sculpted illusion of the past. Like, we're not watching the past. We're, like, watching someone's dream... <laughs> of an interpretation of the past very often. And within that dream, you get problems that have easy resolutions. You get things that affirm our own kind of like moral coda and moral hierarchies. And there is a profound pleasure in that. And like, despite all the sniping and the horror of it all, that obviously the newcomers are going to win. We know what happened. The gowns will be beautiful. I think we love it for that. Like the material spectacle, the sort of moral sensibility that affirms our own values and mores. And I don't know, that's why I love them. Plus all the papers. I love I love their little letter writing. <laughs> I Oh my gosh. There used to be so much more paperwork in life. And I love that Agnes needs a secretary. Why does she need a secretary? She doesn't have, she a, doesn't job. have a job. I know back in that time. I wouldn't have had a secretary to do my correspondence. But the amount of emails and text messages that I get, that I I see, and then I'm like, oh, that's so nice. And then I never respond to. My secretary wouldn't allow that. My secretary would be sitting and she would be taking down my correspondence and sending it out. Okay. You are a 19th century girly. We know you love the novels. We know you love a period piece. We know that you have written new forewords for Edith Wharton books. But you also, like me, have a somewhat tortured relationship to the Gilded Age. Can you tell me a moment where you paused the show and you were like, why are you doing this to me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there have been many moments like that. But the one that stands out in my mind is, 
You know, so the the sort of ostensible protagonist of the show is Marion Brooke, who is a recently impoverished, poor relation of the Van Ryan family who has come to New York. And she is aided by a wonderful, mysterious black woman named Peggy, <laughs> played by the incredible <laughs> Danae Benton. And incredible. they both start living in Marion's aunt's house. And... Mm-hmm. It's incredible their friendship because it's like a black woman and a white woman being friends. And it's like very the color of friendship, but in the, the, ni- the oh 1800s. Oh my gosh. You mean like the Disney Channel original movie? Yes, correct. <laughs> uh, a seminal classic. So the moment that caused me to pause the show was when Marion thinks that Peggy is broke because she's black. And she goes to Peggy's house to give her a pair of old shoes only to be confronted with a woman who is living in just like the glories of the black bourgeoisie of the late 19th century. Like a full brownstone, a full brownstone. Yes. And her mother's played by Audra McDonald, who looks horrified that this white woman has brought used shoes into her home. What did you think, Miss Brooke? That we would need cast off shoes? I'm so sorry. I was like, oh, I see what they're doing. They're doing a microaggression. It's like a, she's microaggressing Peggy. And I was just like, <laughs> these people have just lived through the horrors of the Civil War. And Plessy v. Ferguson is like right around the corner. And you expect me to believe right. that like the, <laughs> that like this is what you chose to carve out space for? <laughs> Sometimes the show's like modern sensibilities jump out. And I find those to be the funniest, (laughs) just like the funniest moments. Speaking for myself, when I go to a show like this, I am not necessarily looking to see Ken Burns level accuracy, a history of the United States. That's not necessarily Mm. what I'm looking for, but I don't know. The point to me kind of creating these scenarios and situations that these characters can exist in is to imagine different possibilities. Something that just feels, um, exciting from a historical perspective and a story perspective. When you focus too much on what makes sense in 2023, as opposed to what would make sense and what would make an interesting scenario for the late 1800s, you kind of miss out on some of those opportunities. Yeah. I mean, the show had a really, I mean, the part where I sort of sat up the most when there were black people on TV in this show was when Peggy, well, when Peggy becomes a freelancer, which is so funny to me, but she, when she goes to the black press and they, she's, she's getting the tour of the black newspaper and there's like this really great organic conversation. Have you ever thought about writing anything political, Miss Scott? I have. Don't ask her if she's a Republican. Well, why should I align myself with either party when I don't have the right to vote? And when you think about the fact that a lot of the men who were in that scene are of an age that they would have fought or their fathers would have fought in the Civil War, which ended five minutes ago before the opening of this show. Literally. It becomes really interesting and really rich. And very quickly, that sort of gets shuttled off to, to go hang out with the white people again. And I was like, well, that's like really interesting. I would love a show about the black press. That would be really cool. There's so much there. I mean, even if you just only look at Ida B. Wells, it's like, oh, (laughs) well, okay. (laughs) Like literally that alone, her beef with Frederick Douglass. Come on. Who doesn't want to see that? Okay. On that topic, it amazes me that Frederick Douglass's name has not been dropped once in this entire show. (laughs) (laughs) I literally never even thought about that until you brought it up. Like, 
surely New York is overrun by Frederick Douglass, not impersonators in the sense of like Elvis impersonators, but you know, kind no, of but how- like acolytes. Exactly. Like, they've got to be out there. Coming up, what the Gilded Age says about our desire for social order. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX is Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX is Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from We Can Do Hard Things. Glennon Doyle, her wife Abby Wambach, and sister Amanda talk about all the hard things in life so people can all live a little bit less alone. Listen and follow We Can Do Hard Things wherever you get your podcasts. Thinking about, like, how Peggy, the Black character, is presented, she's this journalist, she's educated, she lives in this beautiful Black brownstone, and it feels like in this show there's, like, an attempt to include Black characters as a part of this high society story, and you note (laughs) that the recently ended Civil War has barely a whisper of an impact on what's going on in the show. How do the Black characters of the show expose the dissonance of period dramas as a whole? Yeah, well, <laughs> I think the role of the Black characters in the show is interesting because I, I do feel like, yes, there is this sort of very progressive attempt to make a more diverse and quote-unquote accurate period drama. Like, there were Black people in New York. Yeah. Many of them were displaced to build things like Central Park and <laughs> the cathedrals <laughs> yes. of the Upper West Side. <laughs> like, yes, yes, yes. And not that that history is really talked about at all. And so they're there, I think, to be set dressing more than anything else. And what I find interesting is that, like, yes, they get these, you know, we get allusions to the black bourgeoisie and the black middle class. We get allusions to black mm-hmm, wealth. Mm-hmm. I think there's a reason why American peer dramas are very often set in cities in the Northeast and the West. And it's, I mean, <laughs> it's a big and, reason. And the reason is slavery. Like the reason yep. is because a sentimental form requires the upholding of bourgeois values and Protestant values. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of requires that it end on this redemption arc because of the nature of like visual media and like film and TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of can't do that if you're in the South in any period before like 1970. <laughs> like you like you just, you can't. It's not going to work. I mean, but it also like, I feel like it kind of barely works in the Gilded Age, like barely. I have this theory that the American period drama the handling of race is always going to be, well, it doesn't have to always be kind of awkward. People could try a little something different. But I think the reason for this awkwardness that maybe doesn't always exist in, 
like British adaptations that are really popular is that like the the British did a lot of their colonial bidding like offshore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> whereas like <laughs> we did all of our colonial bidding. Well, now we, now you and me, but <laughs> white people the Americans did it in-house. If you're watching Downton Abbey or something like that, somebody can make an oblique reference to sugar or rice or tobacco. They can just sort of gesture at something off screen. On the Gilded Age and in the United States and in these period dramas in the U.S., a family's source of money could be an enslaved person who are formerly enslaved person in this case, who's newly free and walking along beside them. You can't get around that fact. There's no yeah. gesturing off screen yeah. to where this wealth is coming from. Yeah. And there's a reason why the Brits weren't writing books set in Jamaica because right, right. that colonial violence. Yeah. Like in America, the violence at home was the violence at home and it was inescapable. I do this game now where when someone when I hear about an American family business that's been in that's been in operation for over a hundred years, I'm always like I like lean in, I'm like, Did you guys have slaves? Did you have slaves? And Yes, because like how'd you get the money to start a business hundred years ago? Shockingly, the answer is very often yes. So like I was watching a video about the the Tabasco sauce and they're like, they've oh, had no. this factory for over like 150 years. And I was like, LOL, wouldn't it be so funny if like they were involved in slavery? And apparently Papa McElhaney, he was like a soldier in the Confederate Army. He was a clerk in the Confederate Army. His wife's family plantation, there is an oh, island. There, there's that word again. <laughs> there's, an, there's an island named after them, the Avery Island. And oh my God. and after the Civil War, the family was like ruined financially. And there are all of these letters among the Avery brothers sort of reflecting over how the war has caused a change in labor conditions in the South and that they're, they're struggling to find workers. <laughs> and so McElhaney, the guy who started this Tabasco, he right. started making it as like a side hustle <laughs> as a way to sort of get some change. And the factory was made on the island, on Avery Island, where it still is oh today. And in that video, the workers in that factory were black. And all I could think about was <gasps> they probably grew up here and they are probably the descendants of the people <laughs> who were freed, who used to work on this plantation. <laughs> And they're still here. And they don't mention any of that in this video at all, of course. And it starts out as a joke. And I'm like, did you guys have slaves? And then I start looking and very often the answer is yes. That to us is over 100 years ago. But at the time of like the events that take place in the Gilded Age, the kind of wealth that we think about today as having these dark roots, it wasn't that long ago at that point. (laughs) It's like... That could have been somebody's uncle, cousin, father, grandfather who was enslaving people or, like you said, stealing land or practicing real deal ethnic cleansing. Bearing all of this in mind, how do you square everything we've just discussed with your enjoyment Mm. of this kind of period drama? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think... The way that I think about it is the way that I I guess I think about everything, which is that these things don't make it impossible for me to engage this work or to enjoy this work. I think it deepens my engagement with it. And like part of the enjoyment is being able to begin to pick it apart and to think critically about it. That's what I love to do is to sort of think deeply about the stuff that I'm taking in 
I don't know. I don't think that enjoying a show just looks like clapping for it the whole time. What does how we construct our past in shows like these say about our own fears and fantasies today? Mm. Us making that show to sort of look back at that time period says something about the moment we're in in which we kind of long for the illusion, (laughs) not knowing that it was an illusion even as it was happening, but we sort of long for a time when like rich people behaved badly, but in a way that was like witty and coy. And like there were these structures in society. I think that we are in a, having felt these like great seizures in our society, these great upheavals of the uprisings of 2020 and Brexit Mm. and the atomization of society. It makes sense that Julian Fellows is like pining for a tightly organized, constrained society. The creator of the show, yeah. Right, like it it makes sense that he would dream of Mm. like a show like The Gilded Age. Modernity has like raided society of meaning and Mm. unity and cohesion. And we're now this atomized, like balkanized archipelago of fiefdoms and tribes. What does Julian Fellows imagine but... (laughs) Like like, the comfort of order. Yeah, exactly. The Gilded Age. (laughs) (laughs) And so here we are again, reimagining ourselves. And you see it in shows like Succession. You see it in shows like... Billions, these shows in which like we are recasting the wealthy as like we're putting them back in Olympus and we're watching the gods hmm. duke it out, right? Like it makes sense that after all of that, we would sort of want to sort of reconfigure all of this stuff. And so I think, yeah, a show like The Gilded Age says that we're in a place where we're hungry for dreams of order. That's a very, very, very interesting point. Of course, when we watch these films and TV shows, not everything in a period drama or this sort of period drama needs to be historically, like mm-hmm. extremely to the letter, historically accurate. But I wonder what would a less historically dissonant or discordant version of a period piece like this look like? You wrote a, a wonderful essay about the Gilded Age on Sweater Weather, and you had talked about the element of the Gothic and how mm. that might fit into this tale that would make sense for you. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So I think a sort of more gothic take would just be to let some of the sort of simmering darkness of the social context leak into the show. Like the sort of simmering social unrest that is going to lead to Plessy v. Ferguson, the sort of Mm. brutality of the civil war, not just for the black people, but the white people. Like it lingers so strongly in society. That's why they're trying so hard to have these parties. And I think it would look like, in the same way that Edith Wharton does in The House of Mirth, capturing the whole slimy spectacle of the underbelly of, the, of this social world and examining the lives of the poor characters, examining the lives of the working characters, ironically, letting some light and life in, you know, like, why hasn't there been a series of scenes at a dance tavern, at a bar, and for me, the Gothic just looks like that, holding those things in tension with this very staid moral parade or pageantry that's happening on the surface. And thinking about the Gothic, I imagine that that would have a completely different tone and audience than the people who currently watch The Gilded Age, right? Maybe, yeah, it's certainly a different tone. Certainly a different tone. I don't know about <laughs> a different audience. Though. I mean, I think that 
I yes, I think that the people who would tune in on purpose to a more gothic the Gilded Age would mm-hmm. be different, but I think you would find that there's a lot of overlap. It's like Killers of the Flower Moon. Like a lot of people probably went into that thinking that they were going to get like a classic Western tale in which like a white man saves mm. a bunch of brown people, right? And what they get is something much darker and much closer to a gothic. And so it can be done brilliantly and beautifully. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for joining me again. This was so much fun. You were the exact person I wanted to talk to about this. Oh, it's always a blast with you. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Brandon Taylor. His latest novel is The Late Americans, and you can find his essay on The Gilded Age on his newsletter, Sweater Weather. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. It's Jeremiah from Berkeley, California. Um, I know you've been super excited about Jada Pinkett Smith's new memoir. Um, Now that it's out, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. How are we feeling about it? Thanks a lot. Jeremiah, first of all, thank you so much for calling in with this question about Jada's memoir called Worthy. I know we talked about this before. This is back when y'all a couple weeks ago were sick of hearing about the Smith's personal business. And I said, for the record, I'm loving it. But honestly, I've been listening to it on audiobook. It's been such an edifying listen. She is so engaging in the way that she tells her own story. So far, I'm loving the book. I'm right at the point where she has decided to leave college and is heading to Hollywood. I will say she has yet to meet Will, though, at the point that I'm at. So things might take a turn. (laughs) But she has a really great way of reflecting back on her life and like looking at it with the intimacy that you want from a memoir, right? Where someone's telling you how something made them feel or think. But there's something that I have heard from some people that they're kind of like not into that I've been loving, which is at the end of every chapter of the book, she has these like reflection questions for the listener. Child, let me tell you. When I heard these reflection questions, I was like, I need to start a sister circle book club so I can discuss it with my friends. So I have been enjoying like the whole self-help aspect of it all. For me as a 35, almost 36 year old millennial woman, it feels like such a throwback to those memoirs that used to be on Oprah and her book club. And it's kind of fun to realize that I'm finally at the point in my life where that's apparently something that I'm very into as well. Anyway, Jeremiah, thank you so much for calling in. I've really been enjoying Jada's book and it's a pleasure to talk about it. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. This episode was edited by Jessica Plachek, Bilal Qureshi. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our Senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's our show for today. I'm Brittany Luce. See you next week for another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.